2: welcome to the love tennis podcast or welcome back if you are indeed coming back and welcome if it's your first time thanks very much for joining us i'm james gray of the i newspaper and i-news.co.uk. I'm as always joined by George Belshaw of Metro.co.uk, who joins me from his,
1: I think, parental home. George, I recognise that wallpaper. It is, yeah. Um on a, a little another little holiday to Birmingham. Um, <laughs> <Great> <laughs> second of my summer trip to UK cities. I've got <laughs> Liverpool, Manchester coming up this time after doing Edinburgh and Sheffield last time. So oh. I'm loving the British holidays this year. Well, I,
2: I am currently in Edinburgh um, and I'm doing Oban. And then later we're doing uh, Liverpool as well. And uh, yeah, I can't remember where my other trip is. Oh, Blackpool. All the glamour of uh, UK holidaying at home. Uh, that, that is how, where we are. Um, Lots of stuff going on all over the world that we can't possibly get anywhere near, but we can at least talk about it. Uh, This week coming up, we've got uh, a Naomi Osaka special. Uh, We'll look through the three-part documentary about Naomi Osaka on Netflix. Um, Feel free to go away and watch it and and then come back and listen. We'll we'll do Naomi kind of last um, or maybe have a listen to us and then watch it afterwards and take your own opinions away. Um, Novak Djokovic is pulled out of the tournament in Cincinnati. Uh, we'll discuss what that means for his US Open hopes. Yannick Sinner has won his first or biggest, I should say, ATP title, albeit in not a great looking draw. Uh, there are also titles for Daniel Collins and Andrea Petkovic. Uh, Stefano Tsitsipas is up to number three in the world. Roger Federer turns 40. And of course, tennis is underway in uh, Toronto slash Montreal in the uh, Canadian Masters or the Rogers Cup as at least it used to be called, or they may have stopped calling it that, I think. Um, but let's start. No, they haven't. They're still calling it that. Good. I'm glad they got something right for once. Um Let's start with Novak Djokovic, the world number one uh, this week. I think, in fact, just this morning, or maybe last night, uh, posted a statement on social media uh, saying that he's not going to be playing the Cincinnati Masters, which goes by another sponsor's name, but they're not paying me, so I'm not going to. Um, He, of course, usually plays in Cincinnati as his traditional uh, US Open warm-up, certainly has pretty much whenever he's been available, Uh, but he posted on Twitter last night, saying I wanted to share with you that I'm taking a bit longer to recover after quite a physically taxing journey from the Australian Open up to Tokyo. Sadly, this means I won't be ready to compete in Cincinnati this year, so I'll be turning my focus to the US Open and spending more time with my family. Can't wait to see you in New York soon. George, this has been a a bit of a running theme with Novak's scheduling over the last, I guess, two years where he has recognised the importance of spending a bit more time at home and maybe a bit less time on court. Um, Given that he also pulled out of the Olympics uh, with, or out of the mixed doubles, I should say, with a shoulder injury, I suppose this isn't a huge surprise.
1: No, um, definitely not a huge surprise. Um, I think we kind of said last week that it'll be interesting to see his kind of next move, whether he wants to get back, get some matches under his belt to kind of get rid of the kind of emotional draining of the Olympics or whether the physical problems outweigh the mental ones. And, you know, he's not mentioned the physical problem in terms of, yes, my shoulder's buggered. um, But he has said there's been a lot of kind of physical and mental strain on him from uh, Australia to Tokyo, which, you know, is kind of true. But it does... Yeah, I mean, it'll be really interesting. I I mean, we've said it before. It's still really hard to look past him in a best of 5 sets slam as anything other than the favourite. But I definitely feel I've gone from 98% Djokovic winning it down to about an 80% now, uh, Mm -hmm. which is still high, don't get me wrong. But there feels to me more windows of opportunities for other players um, for him at the moment.
2: I think... I, I remember going back through his preparations for uh, the US Open and basically found that he almost always plays Cincinnati, but the years that he doesn't is when he's played the Olympics because he's played quite a lot of Olympics draws. So it, it kind of makes sense that he wouldn't play this this Olympics, uh, sorry, after this Olympics to go, to go to Cincinnati. He's obviously had outdoor hardcore conditioning in Tokyo, so he'll be in a pretty good place in terms of preparation. Um, How much injury there really is is almost impossible to tell. I don't think we noticed anything physical in Tokyo other than just struggling with the heat and and with the kind of exhaustion of it all, which is pretty unusual for Novak. So you you might read something into that, but I'm kind of with you, George, like I'm only going to take a few percentage points off what what is still a a favourites tag.
1: Yeah, and, you know, the things that are making me pull those percentage points off are more the kind of emotional stress of going for more history that seemed to kind of get on top of him at the Olympics. That shoulder is slightly factored in based on, OK, he'll stop serving well against Zverev and then had a few more struggles against Karina Buster. Um But the things that keep it up there are, can anyone beat him best of five sets on a hard court if he's playing... Even 80% at the minute. Are the young guys ready to go that distance? I don't know. I'm still, I'm still not convinced there's anyone out there. And if Rappers the guy in his half of the draw as um, the fourth seed, I, I think that's a good draw for for Novak, really, uh, given he's not lost to him for about eight years or whatever.
2: Mm, indeed. Um, better news on the American hard courts for Italy's Yannick Sinner. He picked up the biggest title of his career to date beating Mackenzie McDonald in the final in Washington, 7-5, 6 7-5. Uh, it's a 19-year-old's third career title. It takes him up to a career-high number 15 in the world, um, which I think we all think is at least as high as he's going to go. Uh, George, we, we kind of talked about this on the WhatsApp group, and I screenshotted his run to the final. I mean, if if I just take you through the players he beat to get there, um, Emil Roussevori, Seb corder. Steve Johnson, Steve, uh, Jensen, Brooksby, and then Mackenzie McDonald in the final. It, it's not a stellar run. That. I mean, he's, he's playing four Americans in a row on home soil. I suppose you, you might suggest there's a little bit of a challenge there. But realistically, you wouldn't expect him even to even drop a set to any of those, would you?
1: I think it, it's one of those draws that actually, I think, in five years' time, people will look back on and say... You know, without the context of where they all were at this stage in their career and say, "Oh wow, you know that was a pretty pretty tough five hundred draw with yeah. I think corder's going to be a, a good top ten player uh russivo's another Rusevori's one he's had player. some results yeah absolutely you know, I think can develop perhaps not necessarily a dominating hardcore player, but you know he's a good player, okay, Steve Johnson is at this stage of his career jensen brooksby's he he's getting a few results he's kind of emerged um last twelve months and got a bit more about him and and mcdonald again he, he's someone who's come a, a bit of a long way around but he's someone who i've seen him play some decent stuff you know he's been fourth round of a couple of slams so you know i, th- I think there's opportunities he might end up in the odd grand slam semi-final or something if he gets results going his way um so you know right now yeah i, I agree with you it looks kind of <clears throat> a bit of a clean draw particularly at 500 i think you know, we spoke a little bit about how Rude had taken advantage of some fairly sloppy weeks to pick up points, and Yannick's definitely done that here. But still, there were quite a lot of nerves for him. Um, I didn't watch the entire bit, um, entire match against McDonald, but I watched bits and bobs back, and he looked a little bit nervy in big moments. Uh, looked clearly the better player, but McDonald was up for it in the big moments and kept coming in. Um, so yeah, It wasn't all his own way. That that was the only match I think he dropped a set in. Um,
2: mm, it but. was. I mean, it's not his fault. You know, you can only beat what's put in front of you. It was a decent field. You know, if you look at the top eight seeds, Nadal, Felix, Alistair Grigor Dimitrov, Evans, Noria Pelko, and, of course, Sinner, you know, those guys just went out and lost. I suppose the most significant one of those is, of course, Rafa Nadal, who hadn't been in action for some time after missing Wimbledon and the Olympics, said he had a foot injury. I think he spent two weeks without picking up a racket, which actually I'm starting to get to know Nadal's kind of time off a bit better. And it seems that it's not rare for him to actually completely stop hitting tennis balls, which I always assumed, you know, just because of the way he is and because of the type of player that he is, I always assumed he was the kind of guy who, even if he was really bad, would always go and hit. You know, whereas Roger, we know, during a tournament even sometimes we'll just turn up for 10 minutes and hit and then go that's all I need I'll I'll head off back to the hotel um Nadal he beat Jack Sock in the first round having dropped the second set he was then dumped out by Lloyd Harris now with the greatest respect to improving Lloyd Harris (coughs) Rafa Nadal should not be losing that match how much do we take away from that George?
1: Well, they've they've got a rematch actually this week in uh, Toronto, so, so I suppose we'll, if he loses back-to-back to Lloyd Harris yeah. <laughs> that'll be interesting um, I don't read too much into it to be honest, I think when even on the clay we've seen the last couple of years he's taken a bit of a while to get back into his groove, there have been kind of shock losses, um, and on the clay okay, they're probably coming, a shock loss for Nadal is a lossful stop, so they're coming normally in quarters or semis um, on hard, where he's not as dominant, but still pretty handy uh, against most of the field. They're probably going to come a little bit earlier, so I'm not too worried at the minute. Um, as you said, he, he's someone who needs the play to get back up to his level. He's he, for someone who's so good. He has always been quite open about like how vulnerable he is in terms of confidence. He does mm. he genuinely lose confidence if he's if his routine's shaken off. Um, this foot. There've been foot problems with him, I think, since about two thousand and five. Like, there's some. I don't know his exact medical history, so I'm not going to try and pretend to reel it off. But there's some theories that I think his feet have caused the problems with the knees and stuff. So this is kind of a long-term thing he's handled. Um. But yeah, am I am I a hundred percent worried? No. Do I do I think he's going to win the U.S. Open anyway? No. Um, unless Novak drops out. That's the only way I've seen Nadal winning it, um, if he just someone else deals with Novak. So, yeah, um, not too worried right now. Um, But if he loses back-to-back to to Lloyd Harris, perhaps the alarm bells will be ringing.
2: (laughs) He may, in fact, have already played that match by the time you hear uh, this podcast, so we won't dwell on the possibility of that upset too long. Um, I just wanted to kind of pick up one other result from um, from Washington, uh, that of Dan Evans, uh, who bombed out to Brandon Nakashima. You know, I, I said to you, George, uh, th- thank goodness Dan's finally got a half-decent draw uh, because he has had some rotters. Uh, and you pointed out that he could lose to Alexey Papyrin, uh, who didn't even make it through <laughs> to the second round to meet Dan. And consequently... Brandon Nakashima bumped him out six and love. Uh, the second set, Dan was completely disengaged. He, he had no interest in the match at that point. And we know that that can happen. I, I don't want to spend too much time talking about the sort of misgivings of Dan Evans's attitude on court sometimes. But this is his, you know, this is it's not his World Cup final, but this part of the season is where he cashes in. He had a great clay court season, but that was a real surprise. American hard, he talks about it. He's like, yeah, grass, American hard, that's the heart of my season. Quite disappointing to see him, and he has now also lost in the first round in um, Canada to Alexander Bublik in straight sets. I mean, that's a really troubling set of results, isn't it?
1: I think he's in a bit of a funk, to be honest, Dan. Um, The alarm bells are certainly ringing more for him than they are Nadal at the minute. I I think... Mm. I don't know 100%. This is more just... A I, I sense there's been huge, huge disappointment from him in the Grand Slam results, and I think that's knocking into kind of tour-level stuff. Before, it yeah. felt to me like he was playing a pretty good, consistent tour-level. Again, I'm not saying he's winning week in, week out, but he was kind of doing what you'd expect him to do for a decent period. Um, and he obviously pulled himself up top 30, got this kind of nice seeding. Um, and he, he spoke quite openly saying, "Yeah, you know, the Grand Slams are where I want to impact, and it's just not happened again this year. And mm. now I kind of feel like there's a sense with him where those results going against him has now kind of impacted his uh, wider tour results as well. So hopefully it's a little blip, mate. You, you know, we never know if there's like a little injury he's carrying or something else. Well,
2: but I was going to say that it should be noted that he he did have COVID. You know, he missed the Olympics yeah. because he yeah, tested yeah. positive for COVID-19. And we don't know how bad he suffered with it because we actually haven't heard from him a huge amount over the last couple of weeks. But that we know that this disease is is unusual, that we don't always know how long it affects people differently for. And I, I also imagine that having to spend two weeks on his own, or I assume with his girlfriend, Leah, um, you know, at home, knowing Dan and and having spoken to him about his year when he was banned from tennis, I know he will have hated that. He will not have enjoyed, you know, being stuck in the house and not being allowed to do anything. Um, So I I do wonder how much that has kind of knocked him and and made his life more difficult.
1: Yeah. And kind of speaking from personal experience from having COVID, it took me months actually to get my breathing right again. Like I would go for a run and then, I'd stop and then for 45 minutes, I like, could feel like the spores on my chest and I was coughing and spluttering and having huge problems. And some days I would actually really struggle to like walk upstairs and stuff. I'd just be mm. exhausted. Um, so it's, it took me a long time to actually feel right again. After yeah. it. So, you know, and I, other people in my house had it and just weren't affected. And I, I'm, without blowing but you know, by far the fittest of them. You know, yeah. kind of a weird... Balance in that sense, and that's kind of just goes to your point. You know, you can affect anyone and people differently. I think mean, Dimitrov spoke about how he was struggling, yeah, long term with it. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that that is totally fair enough. Um, I didn't see the match, I can't speak to how the six love set went, but if he was genuinely just like feeling exhausted, that that may be no great surprise, to be honest. I
2: think sometimes with Dan as well, he he recognizes that he can't win a match or that. He feels like he can't win a match, and then he can make it look like a tank, basically, where he's like, "Well, I,", I and he met, He's talked about it before. I've spoken to him about how you know sometimes he feels himself just disengaging from the match, and and it's very difficult to to pull himself back in when that happens. Um, but nevertheless, a, a good result for Yannick Sinner, as I say, his third career ATP Tour title and up to a career high fifteen in the world, a good place for him to be. Ahead of the U.S. Open, where uh, why can't he do damage? You know, I mean, there's there's a great um, form check coming up for him. uh, Assuming it goes to uh, with the form book, which is he he faces Daniil Medvedev in the third round uh, up in Canada, which I think could be a cracking match and a a real good sort of just dip a toe in the water of where Yannick Sinner is. um, In what is a really a really strong field as well, so we look forward to that one. It's the third round, so I guess it'll be Thursday, maybe. Yeah,
1: if, it, if it, that, that sounds like a famous, we'll look forward to it, and then he loses you know, James <laughs> Duckworth. Yeah, when he bombs out D- to James D- Duckworth. D- then the, R- the public, which is yeah, kind of possible, I suppose.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, anything's possible in tennis at the moment. That's the one thing that we've uh, we've learned. I can tell you that we will be joined by Calvin Baton, um, our resident tennis coach, although he's not resident at the moment. He is working out in Poland, which is why he is a little bit late joining because Luke has been on court, and We hope he will bring news of a positive result for Luke Johnson, always good to hear and see of him uh, doing well. Uh, George, you mentioned in your notes for the show uh, titles for Danielle Collins and Andrea Petkovic, her first one since 2015. I don't know which of those has excited you more.
1: Um, Probably Petkovic, um, just because she's definitely one of the nicest people I've met on tour. She's like really very nice um i spoke with her during the pandemic about her book club she was kind of running uh, during that time and yeah she gave me a lot of time it was very nice and that that's a something i've heard from kind of across the tour really that she's just very kind of down to earth it's really nice to see her kind of getting a, a win under her belt um and getting back to some form probably in terms of what's the more significant result in terms of the actual tour and who to watch out for it, it is definitely collins um collins is someone who is very very capable can cause big results at big events i think um very good hitter so while pekovich is probably more winding down i think collins will definitely be one to keep an eye on the us open she can pull a few uh shock results out of the bag i think
2: i'm gonna put you on the spot george do you know when the cutoff date for the us open seedings was
1: Only like six weeks before,
2: isn't it? I would think it's gone already. So I'm just basically I'm wondering whether Daniel Collins is going to be seeded uh, at the US Open. I think she probably will be, but she also might not be, which would make her A, a real sleeper and a difficult first round opponent. uh, And B, an excellent little fantasy pick uh, when that comes around in a couple of weeks. Uh, Speaking of fantasies, one has been fulfilled because Calvin Beton has joined the call. Uh, Live from Poland, Calvin, how are you? Uh,
0: Very well, very well. Good.
2: Uh, tell us how Luke got on this afternoon so far.
0: Uh, he won uh, 10-5 in a Champions tie-break. 6-3, 6-7, 10-5. And the second set tiebreak was 10-8.
2: Wow. Uh, it sounds like a good match, if a stressful one to watch.
0: Uh, it, it, it was a decent level. Uh, the problem with futures tournaments um, is in qualifying, you don't get new balls. So the match lasted nearly three hours, and they were still playing with the same balls on a clay court. So basically you had two players just absolutely leathering every ball and it going nowhere. And um, it, was, it was a bit, at the end, it was a bit of nonsense, really. They They really need to sort that out on a clay court, I think, that rule.
2: All the fun of the fair, nevertheless. Well, well done, Luke. And uh, I know he's played doubles this afternoon with Arthur Ferry, so best of luck uh, in that as well. Um, well Calvin, we, we've been through a few bits of news already. Um, I guess the the biggest one is the biggest surprise, which is that Roger Federer turned 40 this week, which none of us could have seen coming, um, we, which was heralded by potentially the most disingenuous tweet I have ever seen uh, from Patrick McEnroe, who, as far, I mean... Uh, I don't know where he gets off, but he he wondered whether any of the other big three would be ranked inside the world's top 10 when they
0: reach 40. Uh, I lost you for about uh, 10 seconds there, James. So could you tell me the question?
2: Patrick McEnroe mouthing off about Roger Federer still being in the top 10 at the age of 40 and how Nadal and Djokovic definitely won't be. It might be the most disingenuous thing I've seen on Twitter all week.
0: Um, yeah, weird thing to a weird thing to talk about, really, isn't it? <laughs> like, well, I'm not sure what kind of flex that would be from Federer. Um, like, but also, I mean, it's like we've had—he's basically had two years out as well. In normal years, I don't—if he'd—if he'd have had the operation he's had, and he'd have been losing points at the rate that he has, I don't think he'd have been in a top top ten at forty, would he? So no, no, really. I don't even see what what the point in that argument, point in that argument is. <laughs> <laughs> like, 40 I, isn't the benchmark for her. If you're not, if you're not in the top 10 at 40, it's just rubbish. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I suppose it is worth, though, maybe considering, you know, uh, Rogers had incredible longevity, and we know that, and we can kind of pay tribute to that. But it would be pretty remarkable if, frankly, if either Nadal or Djokovic, Djokovic being 34 and Nadal being 35, were anywhere near the top 10 in, in five or six years' time, wouldn't it?
0: Yeah, I, uh, Nadal won't be. I mean, it's like, you know, he's, he's barely playing the level of a top ten player now on anything and anywhere other than Roland Garros. Mm. Um, Djokovic, you'd find it bizarre, wouldn't you, just because of his, you know, the way he plays? And I think this is one of the things that Feder that people, there's always these sort of allegations thrown round about. I know some people about the, why Federer. It's 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 impossible that Federer would still be playing the level he is even when he was 37 or something like that, but. If you know tennis, it's the way that he plays. He, his body, he doesn't put his body through a whole lot of stress. He's a, he's a beautiful, graceful mover, so there's not a huge amount of torque going through the muscles and that kind of thing, whereas Djokovic and Nadal are completely different. Their bodies will have been through a hell of a lot over the years, but I'm surprised they're still going now. But, yeah, maybe... I'd say 5% chance that Djokovic will be, but I i doubt he'll want to be... There's it's another question about it, like, will Djokovic want to be hanging around if he's like nine in the world, losing quarterfinals of slams, that kind of thing. I, I doubt it.
2: Hmm. George, I mean, yeah, I think Calvin's right on Nadal and it seems unlikely that he will still be there. But I know you've got a lot of belief in Djokovic's longevity. Do you think he's got six more years in him?
0: Uh, I mean, he,
1: he said himself he'd like to play to his forty. I mean, I, I kind of agree with Calvin in terms of Probably realistically, will be need, need to be some sort of mild stylistic cha- change of play. I mean, one thing Federer is quite happy to do is just let the ball go past him now. Like, if there's not a point he's dominating and winning quickly, he'll kind of be like, okay, that's done, and then on to the next one. He's very good at doing that. Whereas Novak kind of like refuses to let any point die, um, frustrates as opposed to hell. Um, I mean. No no that while he is at thirty four, he is a bit of a unique athlete in terms of how well he's looked after his body for such a long time. I mean it sounds silly but I know Calvin hates yoga, but you know, he's been doing that since he's been six and the flexibility kind of shows from it. You know, he's running around doing the splits. He's he's a pretty unique athlete in that sense. And I, I'm pretty sure I read something a couple of years ago where they did one of the, the body, how old is your body sort of readings, which they did with like Cristiano Ronaldo and stuff. Um and his was something between like 18 and 21. Um, right. so I, think, I think Novak is in pretty good shape, but what will happen is certain joints I think just can't handle it so much, whether that's elbow or knee or something I think will go wrong and make it a lot harder for him to carry on. But I'd still expect Novak to be top five by 37 and probably still chasing. A lot of slams um but 40 you know, six years is such a long time to kind of cool yeah. really.
2: i think um you mentioned the joints i think that's right i think the shoulder is the one that, the shoulder and elbow which i guess is obviously connected um they're the ones that really concern me he's obviously had surgery on that arm but he's also he's rebuilt his serving motion so many times and i'm absolutely convinced well, i know for a fact that on at least one of those occasions it was medically advised he was like the way you're serving will just destroy your elbow pretty quickly and the fact that he's kept remodeling that I think suggests that there are doctors who keep saying, look, this bit of stress isn't working. This bit of biomechanics is creating problems. And I think that is what will stop him. I don't think he will stop himself because I think probably he won't mind being world number nine and still having the chance to to sweat in the second week of Grand Slams, even if, if it is losing at quarterfinals, but. Yeah, I guess it remains to be seen, but it's an interesting one to consider. We certainly wouldn't have predicted that Roger Federer would be playing at the level he is. I suppose you have to consider as well that Federer, also a graceful mover, but also now the most aggressive player in tennis. Like, he plays short matches, and you have to wonder whether whether Djokovic could do that, whether he could make that change and, and go and play a different style of tennis. You know, we've seen Murray really struggle to do that, haven't we, Galvin? Like, he... He hasn't been able to adapt his game very much.
0: Yeah, although I'm not sure how much Murray has tried to do that. I know the people around him wanted him to do it more than he has. But I, once that's ingrained in you, once you once you've made millions and won as much as he has doing a certain thing a certain way, it, it takes a whole lot to then decide you're going to do it completely different. Um, yeah. and I. I yeah, and his whole thing, it's not just a game style with Murray. I think it's the way he sees it as an art. He likes problem solving. He even said last week about Jenson Brooksby, he likes how he he chisels and solves problems and this kind of thing. I don't think Murray would fancy just leathering forehands and backhands um, yeah. all the time.
2: Yeah, it's a good point. Um Let's move on. Uh, th- there's been a bit of fluctuation in the world rankings. Uh, Stefano Pass is up to world number three, the dial dropping to four. I, d- I don't want to, uh, because we talked about it actually, funnily enough, last week, because I saw it coming in a, in a tremendous piece of foresight slash use of live ranking software uh, on my part. Uh, I guess it is worth, George, noting that almost everyone, I think five of the top ten are in Toronto this week. And maybe nine of the next ten as well. So it's a it's a decent size draw in terms of the, the quality in there and a pretty good form check. I think I can't remember who Titi is gonna come up against because I haven't looked at his draw. Oh he's got Uga Umber yeah. in the first round, yeah. He's lost and then, yeah, exactly. And then potentially a, a Karatsev or a Nori or someone like that. I mean, where do you think Titi Pass's game is at the moment? A couple of weeks out from the US Open.
1: what a bother up and down isn't it yeah I don't view him I mean if we're talking about favourites to win the US Open it's Novak Medvedev Zverev and then probably sisipas and Nadal kind of level but a distant fourth I would say that would probably be my top five and um, obviously if team has a miracle recovery he, he could do some damage but I don't see that happening and then Sinner is probably in at seven that's mm. probably where I'm at at the minute, but I think Novak and Medvedev really should be considered the two very best. And Zverev's form at the Olympics has thrown him in that top three as well now. I think
2: mm. it's kind of troubling because a year ago maybe we would have considered. C- I'm, in fact, we probably did say that Pass would be one of the, you know, one of the guys who who would be a U.S. Open uh, candidate within 12 months, wouldn't we?
1: Yeah, um, <clears throat> I mean he's still been to a final of a Grand Slam this year and obviously Wimbledon, Wimbledon was a bit disappointing but it was such a short turnaround, something he's not used to he didn't play a match on the grass and then played TFO he played about eight matches the Olympics, that was disappointing but still, okay it doesn't need to necessarily be a massive crisis and then if you look at his slam results before that he posted semis at the French again and semis in Australia so it's not not bad, he probably will be absolutely fine, I just I don't see him beating Djokovic and Medvedev on a hard court over five sets at the minute um, yeah. that's that's the main issue and I think Zverev is more likely if he plays how he did in the Olympics to do that um, but as I say Djokovic is about 80% for me, Medvedev is about 10% Zverev is about 5% and everyone else fills that last 5% Could that add yeah. up? Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, I'm not good at maths.
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> Calvin, what what do you think of Stefan? We've talked a lot about Stefanos Tsitsipas's game, and I know you have thoughts on his backhand. I mean, what do you make of his hard court game? We know how good he's on clay, and he's got success on hard. How do you assess his hard court game?
0: I mean, he should be. He shouldn't be a problem. I think he should be able to play on all the courts, but he just seems to have a huge drop since since being two sets to love up at the French Open final. Yeah, he's all gone peaked on for him hasn't it It's all it, it, he can't seem to be able to get any sort of form up until that point he, there was an argument that he was equal the best player in the world this year yeah um, and well probably up until that point it, you could argue he was the best player this year because he was two sets up on the guy who was along with him but yeah. since then it's been terrible
2: yeah just, just to kind of inform some stats on that since then uh, he has played seven matches uh, and lost four of them and the only guys he's beaten are uh, uh, Dominic Kerr for uh, Philip Kohlschreiber and, and Francis TFO. So, yeah. And, of course, as you say, George lost to Hugo Umber at the Olympics. Uh, a bit of a chance to maybe avenge that in Toronto or perhaps lose again and really trigger a crisis. Um, there is, I mean, there's, there's very little news really to bring you from Toronto otherwise, other than, uh, as I know George is already uninterested in the tournament because Nick Kyrgios uh, lost in the first round to Riley Apelka which I actually was, not that I'm a huge Nick Kyrgios fan for any particular reason, but I was quite disappointed in because he was due to play Nadal in the third round, uh, which would have been quite entertaining. Uh, and, and obviously he has a little bit of the wood uh, on Nadal. Are there, any, are there any guys in Canada this week, just briefly, who you've got an eye on or who you really want to see something from, maybe ahead of the US?
0: Um, I guess I'm looking at, again, Brooksby and nakashima um, they're the two who, the two Americans. They got high hopes from. They can both certainly play, um, but yeah, just see where that where they end up. I mean, I don't think they're challenges for the tournament, but I, I think other than that, again, be interested to see if um, Hachov can take his Olympics form into the um, into a major for the first time. He's he's struggled to get any, ever get any sort of consistency, hasn't he? So yeah. that's yeah. another one. And then yeah, and then Dan Evans, I guess, can he get some form back?
2: Well, as as you may have missed being in Poland, uh, Calvin, Dan Evans is already out because he lost to Alexander Bublik. Uh, yeah, we the, saw the, that,
0: actually. <laughs> oh, well, brutal. Yeah, um, um, he's not in any sort of form, is he?
2: No, no. Uh, we, we, we're we discussing that potentially having had COVID, probably not a, a great way to prepare for the American hard court season. Um, l- let's move on because we, we've all, um, in various ways and in various places, Uh, managed to watch the Naomi Osaka documentary uh, over the last couple of weeks, couple of days, I should say. Um, It's obviously been out on Netflix for a while, so hopefully you've had a chance to see it, and we're not spoiling anything for you. Um, If you haven't, feel free to pause. Well done, you've stayed with us, you didn't pause, um, and and go away and watch it. Uh, There's a lot to kind of unpick in this documentary. It's three parts, uh, 40 minutes each, which is something that I already have an issue with, but um, that's uh, potentially neither here nor there. Um, it's an interesting watch. It's different from probably any sports documentary that I have watched certainly in the last you know, five years, which has been a, a really, I guess a bit of a golden era for sports documentaries for whatever reason, maybe because the Brits have been embracing it a bit more uh, from the American side. George, I guess let's start with you, your kind of overall impressions. I mean, did you enjoy it?
1: Um, good question. <laughs> I, it was a funny one. I mean, I, I found myself like kind of unsure where I felt at the end of it. Like I didn't feel I learned that much. That's the first thing I'd say. I didn't feel like there was anything about Naomi Osaka that I didn't know already, really. Um, there were some moments that I thought were quite revealing about, or kind of hammering home who she is, one of which was her kind of birthday uh, with her mum where she was kind of asking, you know, she'd won a couple of Grand Slams at this stage and she asks her basically, have I done enough almost like for you? And there was this kind of weird vibe I felt a little bit, particularly from like the first episode, she was talking about how she was on court for like eight hours from the age of three or whatever you know there was references to how her parents um both decided she she was going to be a tennis player and it, I, do, I do kind of feel it's almost quite a sad existence when you start off that sort of level of life when your path kind of decided for you at that stage um yeah. you know it, it wasn't it wasn't said oh i was forced to be on court and it was terrible but I'm, I'm pretty sure most kids wouldn't want to be doing that most of the time. And it does take a certain amount of pushiness that comes kind of by nature. Um, what it, you know, I think people will be split in two camps on this documentary. They'll have enjoyed the kind of arty documentary style of it. It's definitely very different to, say, Murray's documentary last year. Murray's documentary, I felt I saw lots of things I, I wasn't seeing about him before. Um, I liked the interactions with his teammates. There was a lot, of kind of, conversational stuff, a lot of them talking and saying things I'd not heard before. Whereas Asaka, the, there were very few kind of bits of dialogue, um, but it was shot quite interestingly, quite far removed, and kind of le- lent itself going into all the stuff that's then since happened um, when she's been quite open about her mental health struggles, um, etc. So. As ever, I'm kind of a bit on the fence. I, I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. Um, I can see why some people would have enjoyed the artsy side of it. But for me, being a very base level, probably non artsy person, um, I, I felt there could have been more. It, it just felt very at arm's length. That's kind of how I'd describe it, really.
2: I, I kind of wanted to, to pick up on the, the parental stuff. I mean, yeah, you mentioned that birthday party. Um, I, I kind of made notes throughout but it was mostly just quotes from what she was saying and yeah it's an incredible moment and it's 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 one where garrett bradley the director is filming from quite far off but obviously there's a there's the, the the characters are mic'd up so it feels like an intimate moment and she says i wrote it down here do you think by the time i was 22 i'd have done more or is this acceptable and actually in fairness her mother says you know you've done brilliantly we're like what are you talking about but actually, yes, in the first episode, she says that, you know, my parents met and they had a dream of having kids that play tennis. And it's her and her sister. I think you say it, Marie. I don't know if it's Marie or Marie. Um, and they, they talk about how they never really played tennis with other kids. They only ever really played with themselves and with, with dad. Um, and that was kind of it. And you can see how all this introspection is kind of developing in, in her character. So I thought that was interesting. But, you know, I mean, Calvin, you'll know this having worked with juniors. It's kind of an occupational hazard, right? If you want to be a professional tennis player, you kind of need an obsessive one or at least one, if not two parents.
0: Um, absolutely. You need, I think there's even been studies on it um, through all sports that you need a, it doesn't have to be obsessive. It doesn't have to be crazy, but you need a, a parent who's keen. Or just somebody who's interested in the sport, wants to take you to the sport, what is willing to do the hours the miles on the road, that kind of thing. It doesn't even include, it doesn't even involve the money at some stage, but you, I, it's, it's 100% and it's impossible without it. I've tried as well. I've, I've, I coached a lad um, a few years ago, was phenomenally talented athlete at all sports. He, he played rugby, cricket, at, at Sort of from, I coached him from him being eight to about 12. And he, he could comfortably have been a national level tennis player but his dad, who was a great guy, don't get me wrong, and they weren't forceful or anything. His dad was just a rugby fan and he just he wasn't that interested in tennis. So when it came to it, asking him to take asking him to spend their weekends traveling to tennis tournaments, it just wasn't gonna happen. So yeah, hundred percent you need and, and I think that's where the some parents get it wrong. You don't have to be obsessive. You just you do need a parent who who is the driving force behind it, I guess. Mm.
2: Yeah, and it, it creates, I suppose, there are different ways of doing it, right? Like, I, I, there's a nice bit when they they feature that interview that Naomi Osaka did on court with Coco Goff after she'd be here in the US, and talking about how, you know, they'd always seen Coco and her dad on court and kind of looked up to them. But the, obviously, they were a bit more kind of embedded in in what was going on, and they were part of an academy later on. And I feel like they have gone about it slightly differently in that they've been quite socialized, for want of a better word. You know, she, Naomi talks about being homeschooled and how that kind of limited interaction with other kids beyond really um, her sister. Uh, the, right at the end, there's a really weird bit. Uh, I don't know if either of you picked up on it, where she says, oh, I always wanted the high school experience. I'm not aware of the timeline, but I think other people my age are in college now. And I was like, That's mental. Like, she's (laughs) so kind of bubbled, and, and, you know, (laughs) pre-pandemic, she's so kind of within this very specific bubble of her world. She doesn't know what 22-year-olds are supposed to be doing. I thought that was insane, George. Yeah, I
1: agree. And again, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think the documentary doesn't reveal much more about her personality that we didn't know, but perhaps it revealed a lot more around the circumstances that give it a bit more context. Does that make sense? I think Yeah, like, you kind of see the moving parts around it without actually getting to the core engine of who she is, what she feels. You know, she, she doesn't give that away. And, and maybe that's kind of the point, to be fair, that, well, I'm sure it is the point, that, you know, she's a shy, reserved, different character i mean it, it wasn't it wasn't boring or anything but it was you know in the murray document. I, I shouldn't just compare it to the murray one because they're obviously very different people but the murray one there are points i'm sitting there i'm laughing at the dialogue i'm seeing who he is as a person i'm seeing this kind of dry humor a little bit of kind of on court humor between him the relationships he's developing with other people it was awkward. it didn't feel to me like she had a there was a bit with her sister where she, she was kind of saying they're very close but it it does feel like
2: she lives quite an isolated life. Yeah. Is- and, and always has, I think. Like, has always been, you know. And she's got this team around her. And she's got Stuart Duguid, the the, the agent who, as far as I can tell, is a bit of a cookie-cutter Scottish agent. Like, you know, the IMG, they're the 10 to a penny guys like him. And, yeah, I think they all get it and they will understand. But it also, I think, did a good job of demonstrating how insane her world is. You know, when she, she hooks up with Wim Fissett, the, her coach, and it's sort of global exclusive announcement by some bloke presenting a presentation. But it's, it's, he is presented for the first time at the Naomi Partner Summit. And it's clearly like, you know, a, a, a shindig for people who sponsor Naomi Osaka. And there's like 100 people there. Like there's so many people there who clearly all have a piece of Naomi.
1: Yeah, and, and, and that's another thing I was kind of going to say. I, I really disliked a lot of people around her. Not, not Stuart, actually. I didn't. I thought he was a fairly laid-back, decent-enough guy from, from what you can see of that. Yeah. But some of the people around her, I mean, the one who called it Mother Trekking Fashion Week, I wanted to slap with a <laughs> fish. I mean, what on earth are you talking about? Like, there was just so much like weird excitement over like the smallest, most insignificant thing. I mean, the whole fashion stuff, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not a fashionable person. I'm not into it at all. <laughs> no, you're I'm, certainly not a fashionable you know, person. <laughs> but, <laughs> but did anything look more soulless to you than, than that whole fashion week thing? I mean, it just looked so unappealing. I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't think of anything worse than to be sat in the, that room with those people chatting nonsense. And it did mildly irk me, I'm not going to lie, and does slightly irk me about Kind of celebrity culture and stuff, and I understand why it happens for, you know, the kind of capitalistic reasons. But it it is a bit annoying, isn't it? That we're talking about. She's worked all her life to be a good tennis player, and then suddenly she's given this massive fashion range. She's allowed to do top designers and stuff. I mean, it's just such a kind of leg up at that point, isn't it? Like, but to be fair,
2: she kind of drives that. You know, she talked. I think the whole point of the documentary and the way the kind of arc is is. It is about her being more than a tennis player. Like, I do feel quite profoundly sorry for her at times when she says that I'm a tennis player and I'm built to win. And if I lose, what am I? And I thought that was a really profound moment and I I think is informed a lot by her her upbringing and the way it's come up. And she talks early on about having a very robotic mind uh, on the court. And then later on, she says, oh, uh, I always followed blueprints of people and now I feel like I don't see a path that I really like. I've found that you have to make your own path. And that's actually one of the rare bits where she's filming herself. Like um, Garrett does a great job giving her her own camera and she does a little bit of filming and you know, there's a, a good moment where she talks about the death of Kobe Bryant and how close they were and how great a mentor he was to her. And she does feel like someone who needs good mentors around her and I don't know how many she's had thus far.
1: I think I think more my point is that there's this kind of ha- two parallel universes where on the one hand we just said you cannot make it in tennis without going on court for eight hours a day from the age of three or four years old with a parent pushing you all the time. And yet in this other industry that's meant to be <laughs> really challenging and hard to get into and people struggling all their lives, and then you can just kind of walk from one to the other. But you, you it would be impossible to do the other way around is my point. You know, you couldn't oh. have... The greatest fashion designer in the world who's worked their ass off to get to the top of that industry which is famously incredibly difficult to get anywhere near the top of and then and gets a while it to wimbledon yeah exactly do you know what i mean that, that that's what i'm saying like it's just a yeah little I, I don't know if it hell, quite is.
2: translates like that's kind of that's fashion you know and she, she's she's <laughs> a marketable person you know and she's that's politics, in the words of Dominic Cummings. So, I don't know. I mean, just to kind of come back to what you were saying earlier, George, stylistically, and I think I know Calvin will have a strong view on this. It is It is not.
1: <laughs> He's been very quiet so far,
2: hasn't he? didn't
1: <laughs> for his overall view.
2: <laughs> I mean, Calvin, you've watched a lot of sports documentaries. I know it's one of your passions. I mean, it's not It's not ordinary, is it?
0: No. Um, I, this one, I, I, I've, I've watched the start of it and I thought it, I was just bored. I thought it was just nonsense. And I think what you find is that I do enjoy, really enjoy watching sports documentaries, but with the exception of the Murray one, which I thought was excellent, the official ones—they've they, gone more in recent years. They've gone more in to, down the line of of sort of being powder puff PR type things. And even like, I'm obviously a huge Man United fan. I, I didn't enjoy the recent Alex Ferguson one. I thought it was a bit. Um, it cut a lot of stuff out. Um, and there was also another Man United one recently that, that was just, it was just PR. It was just publicity advert type thing. And that's the kind of thing I got from this Osaka one. And you don't want to make, you don't want to sound too harsh, but I wonder whether she's just not that interesting as well. Like, I think there's, she doesn't have to be either, you know? <laughs> and I think for certain elements, she's a star, but I don't think, I don't think she's that compelling a character. Um, mm. I think that that's what it comes to. Like, I'm not, I wouldn't be overly enthused about saying, would I want to spend time in, in her company because I want to get to know that person more. And I, I, that's where I think they fall down on stuff like that.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that that she does, and it, it kind of is the point, I think the way the story is told that she tries to develop a personality and also like, you know, she always can't have a personality. It's so rare when you actually think about it, and you'll know this better than me, Calvin, and George to a certain extent as well, but it's so rare that you get a 21-year-old in tennis who's a really interesting person.
0: Yeah.
2: Like, like but, I mean, not many 21-year-olds are interesting anyway, but yeah. when you've spent your life hitting tennis balls, how are you supposed to develop like a yeah, personality?
0: They've, they've not had much time. They've not had much normal life. They've not had much real-life real experience. They usually haven't been to school if you're already that good at that level. They haven't spent time around other people. They don't really develop interests and, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I agree. Um, it, it's it's hugely... Um, it's rare. I mean, especially in tennis. Like Realistically, how many charismatic, brilliant players have there been over the years? I guess you're in McEnroe, um, Agassi. You know, Federer, Nadal and Djokovic are not interesting. They're not compelling characters, are they? So... Um, I mean, even Borg, Borg's sort of character was how uninteresting he was. Um, and, and that kind of, yeah, it, it's not a sport that encourages um, individuality, shall we say. Yeah.
1: This was kind of one of the questions I, I had was, I mean, I, and maybe you guys know the better answer to this, but how, how many individual documentaries have there been about like athletes so kind of so close to the start of their careers almost? Like, I did think that was kind of one of the, the movements of this documentary, that it almost felt like it was a leaving a lot of space for, say, a lot, a lot more in the future where they'd reveal more almost. But it, it seems to me that a lot of the documentaries we've seen are players who've already, she has achieved a lot, but she feels like she's got a long way to go in her career. I mean, there could easily be another 10 Grand Slams. I wouldn't put it that past her. But, like, when you come in with Murray's documentary, it's right at the end of his career in the last chapters where he's had all this time to develop as a person as well as an athlete and see kind of the bigger picture beyond just the sport. You know, I think Serena did a bit of one last year with ESPN, um, which I haven't watched yet. Um, so, the, I, I, I'd just be interested to know that Lewandowski's done one, I think, recently. Yeah, you know, it's coming a- out on Amazon. Yeah. I mean, you're right.
2: I can't think I can't think of there being one about a person of that age you know who's only had a professional career really for 4 years and the reason is that they're better when you can look back at stuff you know with a bit more distance yeah. like yes it's great to watch a documentary of a, a title season that's just happened but actually it's almost better to view it in context of what happened afterwards and how that kind of impacted before and after.
0: I, I felt, I'm just thinking there, what I said about her not, not being that much of a compelling character, and I think I'm probably being harsh there, but what I mean is like, I don't think that even if she was, they wouldn't let her be. I think the thing is what I've seen in, in what, the bit that I watched and what I know about the Osaka background and, and sort of PR events in sport in general is that they're in, the people who do that are encouraging them not to have any character any sort of personality and just say the right things and I think what I don't get is if you're going to do that then what's the point in even doing it what's the point in having the documentary if we're, we're going to try and we're only going to allow certain things to be certain aspects of a person's character to come out I just find it like it's, what's the point in it
2: yeah um, I'm going to ask you both for your uh, star ratings out of five in true review fashion uh, George I'll start with you
1: George um, to, to be perfectly honest i mean I, I actually read a few reviews afterwards because I was as ever kind of sitting on the fence about what I thought about it and I, I wanted to just <laughs> I just wanted to see the two threads I was kind of pulling out on both sides like, on the one hand, not much yeah. happens I didn't learn much about it, and then the other hand was kind of like, okay, I could see kind of as I said by like moving parts working around it. it. it was kind of interestingly artily done um, but I, I'm a very base. Uh, non-arty philistines so for me there, there needed to be a bit i needed to learn a bit more i didn't feel yeah. i learned enough i wanted to see more of who who she actually is more of the relationship she builds um and, and maybe they just don't exist and that yeah. that's fine and if that is the point then yeah, maybe this should be close to five for me it, it, I, I, it, I was between two and three I, i'll give it a three um because i'm in a generous mood today but i I thought there was a lot of things missing that for me as someone wanting to watch something like this would have made it a more enjoyable watch while i found it intriguing at the same time
2: uh calvin same question um
0: one and a half wow (laughs) wow the thing was, I, the, the Murray what, what wound me up about it most of all was, like I've just said, it's like, I remember the Murray, um, the Murray documentary when I watched it, and I said to a, a mate of mine who, who doesn't have anything to do with tennis, and I told him he should watch the Murray documentary, and he says, oh, I don't like it. And I said, no, you should watch it because it gives you a completely different um, perspective on him as a person, and you'll come away with it. And he watched it, and he, he, said, to, he said, like, you were right. He was like, he's nothing like I thought... I got, um, you know, that I had a lot of empathy for him, and you know, he's a different personality altogether. Whereas I don't at this Osaka one, I don't get what it would give us that we didn't already know. Yeah, like good at tennis, her parents quite controlling, and she likes fashion. Like I knew that before I watched any of it. So mm. what, what? What did we get out of it other than I don't know? I don't understand who's going to enjoy it other than Naomi Osaka fans who won't have anything bad to say about her ever.
1: Yeah, oh, and just to quickly add on that i mean a lot of the best lines in it that were like the best conversational lines apart from the mother stuff in the restaurant which was probably the best line was actually stuff she had said in press conferences or interviews before you know yeah. kind of question where it was thrown back at the interviewer on the black lives matter stuff like what have you learned about it that's the point not what i'm saying about it it's like bringing it to you that that's one of the most powerful things she's ever actually said and yeah. i just felt that you know you want more powerful things to come before that. And the, the other mm-hmm. tiny last thing I was going to say, when we're talking about context of a story, I just found the start so weird how they didn't contextualise that first match at all. Like, just starting with her winning the US Open. I, I didn't, you know, to me, that just, and this is probably where it's been heavily edited and they're like, you can't put this in. But the context of how she won that first Grand Slam was was the story there. It's
0: just yeah, bland, I I, I was, the uh... rest of that.
2: I was absolutely baffled. To the extent that I was like, did that not happen? Did I forget? Did, yeah. Or was it a different match? that I, I, I doubted my own memory about it because it was so airbrushed out. You know, We're, of course, talking about Serena Williams' gate and everything that went with that and, and it overshadowing completely. And you see when Naomi Osaka has the trophy and is asked to raise it to the crowd, and she looks like she doesn't want to be there because, frankly, she doesn't. Um, my own rating would be a, a, a three, um, like you, George, I felt, and actually, like both of you, I kind of agree, I felt I wanted to know more and I felt like I wasn't given it. I also felt that it was a little bit self indulgent at times. Like there were, you know, minute long clips of Osaka just hitting, which I felt added nothing and were clearly trying to create an atmosphere. Um, I did feel that I got to know her a little bit, like, or at least I understood her kind of character arc a bit better. But I kind of felt that was coincidental, rather than like anything that the the film had told me. Um, please do go away and watch it. You know, it's 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 interesting. It, she's going to be one of the best players of all time. I've no doubt about that in the women's game. Um, it's on Netflix still. Uh, we're not getting paid by Netflix for plugging that. It just uh, it is just there. I wish we were. We oh, uh, were. That'd be good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but we're not. Uh, and do let us know on Twitter what you think of it at Love Tennis Pod. We, we'd love to hear your thoughts and views um because i think it's a a film pitched at non-tennis people and i wonder what tennis people maybe think about it and non-tennis people for that matter although i can't imagine there are many still listening an hour later who don't like tennis um thank you as always to george and to calvin for tuning in from poland and birmingham respectively um i'm in from scotland the most international podcast we've maybe ever had um other than that please do take care of yourself uh Give us a like, a, a rating, a follow, whatever social media you've got, please find us uh, and we'll catch you next week.
0: Sports Social Podcast Network.